it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, June 1st, 2022, a brand new month here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much. For joining us every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we are here with so many of you. Always grateful for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need related to the program is right there, including our free podcast, On Demand, No Charge, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, also an option there, or wherever you get your podcasts. We got the numbers in for May and just up, up, and away again. We're very, very thankful to all of you for that growth. If you are new around here, that's awesome. We really appreciate it. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel again with Brett Baer and friends. That's in the 6 p.m. hour toward the end of that hour, Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Again, that is this evening. Here on the radio later this hour, we will speak with General Jack Keane about Ukraine And Russia, there are reports coming out of eastern Ukraine on the military side that I'd like to get his analysis of. Also, rumors about Russia's intentions moving forward. We will pick the brain of a retired four-star general later on, just about half an hour from now. In our middle hour of three, Charles Payne is going to join us from Fox Business Network, talking about the economy, inflation, potential recession. There's some fighting going on right now between Democratic economists, which is interesting to see. We'll get Charles's take on all of that. Also, Jason Rance will join us from our affiliate out in Seattle, KTTH. He's got a show out there. You see him all over Fox News. He'll be here talking about, among other things, Pride Month, which starts today. So happy Pride to those who celebrate. I think a lot of people in the LGBT community have mixed feelings about what pride stands for, what it should stand for. I'm curious what Jason thinks about all of that. And also, relatedly, Leah Thomas, that swimmer from Penn, the transgender swimmer, she has broken her silence, gave an interview yesterday to Good Morning America, and that is causing controversy. We will ask Jason about all of that. Plus, later on, I want to tell you about what the Biden administration is doing in court. They filed an appeal yesterday. It has to do with COVID and masks. And I will have some analysis and some commentary on that coming up later on today. As we begin, I want to yet again start the program with the latest out of Uvalde, Texas, in the aftermath of that horrible shooting. And yes, if you're watching cable news or you're checking your Twitter feed right now, it might seem like that is not the biggest story because everyone is waiting for the verdict in this Johnny Depp Amber Heard libel trial, and I guess there's tens of millions of dollars at stake. It has been a huge drama and saga for weeks. I know that there's a great amount of interest in it. That interest does not extend to me. I am just not interested in the story at all. We'll tell you what the verdict is if it comes in. It was supposed to already, I think, be announced a few moments ago. 
there was some sort of a delay. So they're all in the courtroom. They're waiting for a few more things, maybe dotting some I's, crossing some T's. So once we get that, we'll let you know. I barely know the basics. And I still believe, to my point that I was starting, by far the biggest story in the country is the school shooting and what has happened since last Tuesday. 21 dead, including 19 children. And there's this school district police chief who is under fire, embattled, Pete Arredondo, who is not answering a lot of questions at all. CNN actually caught up with him, and he mostly had nothing to say. There are reports that perhaps the local district police force and the city police force were no longer cooperating with the state police and the Department of Public Safety. We know that the feds are now investigating what actually happened. There are denials coming down, people saying, no, it's not true. The lack of cooperation has been exaggerated. What we do know is the man who at least has been accused of making the terrible decisions to not go in to those classrooms where you had the shooter in there, two doors locked, with kids bleeding out and other children still alive and hiding in those rooms, that individual who is said to be responsible, we haven't seen virtually any accountability at all for him yet. Now, I read a report from sources close to him who say, and I think it was the New York Post, who say he's being scapegoated. It's not fair. The truth is going to come out. I hope the entire truth comes out. Every single detail. It is excruciating to hear about what happened because it's such an atrocity. But clearly, there has been a changing and shifting official account. In fact, it changed again late yesterday. Remember, by Friday of last week, a new detail that we got is that the shooter allegedly entered the school through a side door that had been propped open by a teacher. Well, yesterday, a week after the shooting, the update came in. Actually, no, the door was not propped open. It had closed. It had not locked properly, which is different. Now, that might not seem like a huge detail. Maybe it's not. But they gave us an official story on that specific detail that has now changed. One of many specifics that were read, at least for public consumption, into the official record, if you will, that then resulted in backtracking, which is why I think a lot of people are deeply dissatisfied with everything that we've heard so far. And there are a lot of answers that we still do not have. One of the points that I've made now for days is that if you had more than a dozen, reportedly 19 officers right outside that classroom, quote unquote, with the barricaded suspect inside, the shooter, and he wasn't really barricaded, they just, he'd lock the doors. And ultimately, they got a custodian, they tell us, a custodian to get the master key and unlock the doors. That's how they ended up entering that classroom. Which is, at least to me, in terms of the meaning of that word, a little different than a barricade. But that's semantics. Let's put that off to the side. If a decision was made, as has now been reported, supposedly by this guy, who hasn't been at the press conference, is barely answering any questions from the media, and who in fact was sworn in yesterday as a city commissioner to the council, he was elected months ago, 
He was sworn in behind closed doors in private yesterday. So he's got a gun and a badge and now elective office in that city. And again, if he's come anywhere close to what he's alleged to have done, if any of that is true, let alone all of it, I don't know how that person can continue in either of those roles, law enforcement or local politician. Now, if he's being totally slandered and it's all false, he needs to get that out there. If not, I think quite understandably, a lot of people are calling for his resignation from both positions. I cannot imagine failing so publicly and so disastrously, resulting in so many deaths and then saying, well, it's time for me to take the oath of office and get sworn in as an elected official. There's a lot of anger in the community directed at the local police. We read you an AP story yesterday on that. For people looking for accountability, again, with still incomplete facts, this at least very much smells like the opposite of that. One more point on this before I get to some of the national politics. Late last week on this show, the report was there had been something akin to a stand-down order or someone made the decision we're not going in. It's a barricade situation now. The active shooting scenario has come to a close, and so they were setting up a perimeter. They were waiting for reinforcements. They were waiting for the waiting for the right equipment, whatever the excuses were at the time. The point I made was they didn't really know who could have been saved. If there were people who had been wounded, children or otherwise, who could be medevac to a hospital or operated on, their life could be saved. Every single second and minute counts. And the timeline shows that by the time the shooter entered the school to the time he was shot dead, it was well over an hour including close to an hour of excruciating just paralysis, a waiting game, no one doing anything. So there was the how would they have known that there were no kids to be saved question. And then there were also all of these reports swirling that there were 911 calls emanating from inside the room during the standoff, if you will, during that long pause period as precious minutes ticked away. And yesterday, ABC News reported they had come into possession of what sounds like 911 dispatches with the dispatchers reporting what they were receiving, including at least one phone call from inside the room from a student. Cut 21. Listen. There's a child. He is in the room full of victims. That's who they had. That's who made the call. And that was coming across the radio traffic. ABC News did a full analysis, and they said that that dispatch that we heard was at 12:13 p.m. that day. And if you remember the timeline, that would still be more than half an hour before authorities decided to breach the classroom, which was around 12:50 p.m. This was 12:13 p.m. 
So that very much seems like another piece of very compelling evidence that makes things worse. Right? I think it would be bad enough if it was just sort of a we don't know and we are jumping to assumptions about what's going on. This goes beyond that. This is evidence that they had in real time. Which is just, again, stomach-turning. So the story keeps changing. The official, quote, account keeps moving. And the theme seems to be, as far as I'm concerned, the more we learn, the more we find out, the more frustrating and outrageous this gets. And people are right to demand answers. Now, I mentioned the national politics. I want to get to that when we come back. Man running for governor in the state of Texas, Beto O'Rourke, who pulled that stunt crashing the press conference of Governor Abbott to heckle. I think that was a, a really, really exploitive, unseemly thing to do. He has now flip-flopped for, I believe, a third time on the issue of gun control in one area in particular Let's go to the audio tape. Let's go with the flashback sound bites when we return. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started on this Wednesday. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. And let's bring you a Fox News alert. The verdict is being read in this libel trial. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, and so far during the break, it has just been a wipeout. Depp is winning. Heard is losing. She has been found liable. And let's take that jury announcement, which is lengthy, live. Let's listen in. Amber Heard and her friends in the media use fake sexual violence allegations as both a sword and shield, depending on their needs. They have selected some of her sexual violence hoax, facts, as the sword, inflicting them on the public and Mr. Depp. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, no. Two, as to this statement, appearing in the April 27, 2020, online edition of the Daily Mail, quote, quite simply, this was an ambush. A hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt did not do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed, and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine and roughed the place up, got their story straight under the direction of a lawyer and publicist, and then placed a second call to 911." End quote. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Has Ms. Heard proven by a greater weight of the evidence that question, Mr. Waldman, 
while acting as an agent for Mr. Depp, made or published the statement? Answer, yes. Question, the statement was about Ms. Heard. Answer, yes. Question, the statement was seen by someone other than Ms. Heard. Answer, yes. Question, the statement was false. Answer, yes. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven by clear and convincing evidence that the statement by Mr. Waldman was made with actual malice? Answer, yes. All right, so it sounds right now, just to contextualize what we're hearing, there are points and counterpoints. So the jury has found Amber Heard liable for defamation based on, among other things, a Washington Post op-ed that had been published. And the jury has awarded Johnny Depp $10 million in compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages. So just a wipeout for her. But now they're reading more of these charges. It's a very complicated case, and it sounds like some of these are going Herd's way. Let's listen back in live. This is the courtroom in Fairfax, Virginia. All right. Does either side wish to have the jury polled? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Jamie? Members of the jury, if this is your verdict, please answer yes. If this is not your verdict, please answer no. Juror number six. Yes. Juror number 10. Yes. Juror number 15. Yes. Juror number 16. Yes. Juror, juror number 22. Yes. Juror number 27. Yes. Juror number 29. I do find that the jury's verdict is unanimous. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your service in this case. I want to thank you again for your dedication. And your All right, hard so that, work that's it. The trial. judge is now addressing the jury, and it sounds like overall the upshot is big win for Johnny Depp, big loss for Amber Heard, $15 million in damages awarded to him that she's going to have to pay. And one of the lawyers said that she wanted to hear every single juror polled to confirm that this was their verdict. You heard that live. They all affirmed that that was the case, and the jury is just about to be dismissed. So that is what you would call a rout in this type of a trial. Just a, a total victory, basically, for Johnny Depp. It's hard to prove defamation when it comes to a public figure, but Depp's lawyers did just that, and he's about to be $15 million richer. So that whole drama, it seems, is finally over. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the program with some breaking news here this afternoon. We'll get to our guest in a moment on the Guy Benson Show. But first, a Fox News alert. If you are just tuning in, we were covering this in the last segment as well, that much-anticipated verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard 
defamation trial finally came in today after all of the courtroom twists and turns. And just one more detail to bring to you. The jury actually did find in Amber Heard's favor on one of her counterclaims. And so they awarded her $2 million on that counterclaim, finding that in that case, that specific instance, Johnny Depp was liable of defamation. No punitive judgment there, just compensatory, $2 million. But they awarded Johnny Depp while going point after point agreeing with his lawyers, and they did a good job apparently of proving it, that there was significant defamation in the direction of Heard to Depp. And for that reason, Johnny Depp has been awarded $15 million, including $5 million that are punitive damages. So that nets out to a $13 million win for Johnny Depp. I'm seeing some of the chirons and headlines, both of them were found liable of defamation. True. But this was a pretty resounding victory for Johnny Depp. She's awarded $2 million. He's awarded $15 million. I mean, I think that speaks for itself. And one of the keys to this case was an op-ed written for her under her name in the Washington Post where she made libelous statements, according to this jury. And that op-ed in the Washington Post, which is in the context of the Me Too movement, was drafted by an official at the ACLU. So their reputation was somewhat on the line in this case as well. So that's the outcome from the Fairfax, Virginia courthouse. And I don't think you can describe it any other way as not a total victory for Johnny Depp, but an overwhelming victory for Johnny Depp. And with that, let's move on to a very different and much more important, in my view, subject with our next guest. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back to the show. Yeah, delighted to be here, Guy. I want to start with a basic question. What is the latest out of Ukraine? Overall, the Russians have been routed. They have failed to achieve almost all of their major military goals. However... In recent days, I've seen a raft of reporting that the Russians might be gaining ground, gaining steam in the eastern part of the country, as that's where this war has basically centered upon right now. What can you tell us? What is happening in Ukraine? Who has the upper hand? Yeah, well, the Russians definitely have have made some progress here in the last week or so. Uh, and you're right, in the eastern part of the Donbass, in Luhansk Republic, so-called independent republic named as such by uh, by the Russians, uh, they have made some progress, and they're taking control of the city of Severodonetsk, which is in uh, in Luhansk. And what, what has actually happened here is the... Uh, the Ukrainians had, had to make, uh, I think, a pretty tough decision uh, they pulled their forces out of Severodonetsk, began pulling them out a couple of days ago when the Russians uh, were beginning to penetrate into the city. And they made that decision because they wanted to preserve their combat strength and not defend the city. I don't think in their own minds, certainly every city in in Ukraine is valuable because Ukrainians live there. But it, it's not critical like Mariupol was uh, strategically. So they pulled their forces away to preserve them 
because what the Ukrainians really have in mind here, while the Russians have made some progress here, uh, certainly, and they have, they have more territory under their control now than they did uh, prior to uh, February 24th when the invasion began, all that territory largely uh, in the south and, and in the east. But the Ukrainians want to conduct a, a, a counteroffensive and certainly begin with some limited attacks, counterattacks. They're doing that as we speak in, in Kherson, in the vicinity of the city, in the suburbs of it. And they've had they have made some progress. Um, but whether they can, Guy, whether they can actually conduct a major counteroffensive to systematically take back the territory that they lost really remains to be seen. We know the Russians. Uh, maneuver forces, that is, their infantry and armor forces are weak, poorly led, poorly trained. Um, Depleted. But their, arti- but their artillery has been uh, very effective. They they have more artillery, and they artillery outranges the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have. And that is why the howitzers that we have sent to them are so valuable and why they've also wanted the as, as, uh, rocket the rocket artillery pieces as well, the so-called HIMARS, that the administration has finally made up its mind to send to them. I think they, they waited uh, far too long, should have made that decision when the Ukrainians So uh, can I just jump it. in, General? Can I, on that point, I've been hearing from some of the experts that the Russians and the Ukrainians are sort of fighting, of course, against each other, but also against the clock. The Russians might be gaining a little bit right now, but that's because there's a lag in the equipment. And when the equipment arrives, the Ukrainians will again be much more formidable and this advantage could go away. Is that correct in your estimation? Well, that's part of the That's certainly part of the story. Um, but, but the Russians have a significant amount of resources, uh, even though their the troops on the ground are not performing that well. They do have significant artillery that they can uh, replace the artillery that's being lost. They have the ammunition. Um, and, and Putin, I think what his where he is, he just intends to grind down the Ukrainians as best as he can. He's going to be patient about it. Uh, he's going to try not to risk too much of his forces. Uh, that's why they've concentrated everything in the eastern part of the Donbass and that has been their focus. The, the western part of the Donbass is in a republic called Donetsk, and they have stopped all uh, forward motion and attacks on that just to focus on this one area so they can have some success. And I think that's sort of the overall plan, just to grind the Ukrainians down slowly um, take less risk with their offensive operations, showing what they did in the beginning with Kiev and also with Kharkiv, uh, both of which they, they lost summarily to the Ukrainians. Now they're being much more deliberate and methodical about what they're doing, also knowing full well that their forces are not only depleted, but their forces don't, do not have the, the skill and the will of, in terms of fighting that the Ukrainians do. So I think that's why they're being so much more measured about what they're doing. So on that front, a lot of the questions now become what would come next? And I've seen one line of thinking that the Russians might try to win 
quote unquote, some sort of a victory, right? That they could call it a win for themselves, sell it that way at home, and then say, okay, we've achieved this objective, and now let's sue for peace on a high note, on a winning note. That could be spin, but that might be what they try to do. There's another report that I read, at least there's speculation that the Russians might be gearing up to try to take another shot at Kiev down the line, thinking that maybe the Europeans would lose their will in terms of helping the Ukrainians, and they still have designs on the capital in the whole country. What do you make of that? Because given how badly they've lost so many of these battles so far, it seems almost delusional to be talking about going back and trying to capture Kiev. What do you believe the Russians might do here? Is it just impossible to know? No, I, I think, well, first of all, uh, I, I do believe that Putin has never given up the goal, which now would have to be aspirational, to take the, topple the country, to take control of the government, and that means the capital city. He does not, that would be impossible for him to do any time soon. He just doesn't have the combat forces uh, to be able to do something on a scale like that. But I do think that they think time is on their side. This is the Russians. They believe that Ukrainian fatigue will set in. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, the media is paying less attention to the war than what it did uh, a few months ago, or even a month ago. Uh, and they believe also uh, the Europeans, uh, at some point, their level of commitment will start to to wane, and he's also hoping that the same thing happens to the to the United States. So, I think their near term strategy is to get as much territory as they as they reasonably can, try to get a and ceasefire, regroup and wait. Yeah, from Zelensky, and then we at ISW have always tracked the Russians uh, since 2014 in Ukraine and also in Syria, and they use ceasefires as a as a tactical move to take advantage uh, of being able to reposition their forces, even though they're not supposed to, and number two, to rebuild their forces. So they they see uh, a ceasefire as, as as something as advantageous to them, and I and I think they may offer that at some point. Certainly, President Zelensky and his generals see through all of that. They're very much aware of what the Russians do and what they're up to. I doubt that he would he would move to that, but if the if the Ukrainians are not able to conduct an effective counteroffensive and, and they're not retaking territory and the war becomes sort of stalemated um, with just incremental gains on each side but nothing consequential, then it's sort of like frozen in place the way it has been since 2014. That is also advantageous to the Russians because that gives them the opportunity to rebuild and also – they they have cut off the Ukrainians from the Black Sea and their ability to export to agricultural products, which is devastating them economically. And that squeeze will become more significant and could possibly force Zelensky to have to make some concessions to the Russians because of the devastation that has taken place. That's why the humanitarian and economic assistance that the United States is providing as a result of the $40 billion uh, legislation that was just passed and what other countries are doing is also vitally important to keep uh, the Ukrainian economically uh, functioning. 
Right, because they're they're trying to strangle them. The Russians are right now, even though the Russians are at at this huge military disadvantage in a lot of ways. Uh, What you're saying, I think, is important and interesting. Last question, General. It has to do with the Russian side. We've heard widespread reports of extremely low morale among Russian troops. We know that the Ukrainians have successfully knocked off multiple generals on the Russian side. There are reports now that at the very top levels of the Russian military – really the brass in Moscow, there is low morale and anger and frustration as well. You add those reports and rumors up with the whispers about Putin's health, and you start to wonder, is there a stable situation for that regime back in Moscow? Your final thoughts and your read on that, General. I think for the time being there is, because they they see – some of the games they're making and the ability to uh, solidify and consolidate their gains in the South and the East still as, as favorable opportunity to them. Uh, and that's in front of them. But if they're not able to do that, and if they start to lose territory once again, like they just recently did uh, with Kharkiv, uh, then I, I do think uh, there would be probably – some serious impact in the Kremlin, uh, given the fact that they're beginning to lose everything. Uh, certainly, that that would be the case if the Ukrainians are successful in a in a counteroffensive. It remains to be seen whether they can do that or not, though, Guy. It's going to be very, mm. very challenging for them. But uh, we can't underestimate them because they have the skill and they have the will, and their opponents do not have that. And they've got a lot more equipment, a lot more equipment and technology coming their way. So the cavalry, in some respects, is arriving, and the Russians also know that, hence the working against the clock analogy that a lot of people have made. No one is watching all of this more closely than our guest, General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman at the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. You're right that this has not been covered as heavily in the press recently, General We are still watching it here, and we are always grateful for your insights and your updates as this war unfolds. Thank you. Uh, It's great talking to you, Guy, and your audience, as always. Thank you. That's General Keene. On The Guy Benson Show, I had to step aside and delay a thought that I wanted to make that I promised and teased earlier in the hour because of the breaking news out of the courtroom in Fairfax, Virginia, the jury awarding Johnny Depp $15 million in that defamation suit, $2 million to Amber Heard, so a big win for him. We covered that live. I wanted to make about gun control a point about gun control, national politics, and Beto O'Rourke, and I will do so as soon as we come back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you. We opened the show on the Uvalde aftermath, and I wanted to make a political point in our second segment of the hour, but we had the breaking news out of Virginia and the Depp trial. Short answer, big win for Johnny Depp. I do want to come back and finish the thought. And the thought is about Better O'Rourke, who's running for governor, challenging Greg Abbott. He's the Democratic nominee. And when he was running for president, you might recall he did that, in 2019 – He got a lot of cheers among the Democratic sort of faithful, the true believer base, by arguing on a debate stage on national television in favor 
of gun confiscation. Cut 10. This is 2019. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. Hell yes, we're going to take your guns. Talking about those particular weapons. Fast forward to February of this year, not that long ago. Beto is now running in Texas again, not nationwide. He'd already lost the Senate race. Texas is a very different electorate than the national electorate, certainly the Democratic primary national electorate. So he backed off of that saying, oh, no, no, there's no talk about taking anything from anyone. Cut 11. I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone. What I want to make sure that we do is defend the Second Amendment. That is very different sounding from the defiant, hell yes, we're going to confiscate your AR-15 to, oh, no one's talking about taking anything away from anyone. Let's defend the Second Amendment. That was February of this year, Beto O'Rourke. Well, now in the aftermath and the anger and the rage and the heartbreak over the slaughter in Uvalde, he is back in favor, it sounds like, of confiscation. Here he was this week on the campaign trail, cut 12. I just took the position that, that may not be politically popular, may be too honest, that not only should no one be able to purchase an AR-15 or an AK-47 because they're designed to kill humans and that high-impact, high-velocity round will just tear up everything inside. You'll bleed out before we can get you back to life. Um, but I don't think that the people who have them right now in civilian use should be able to keep them. So that's confiscation, not just banning future sales, but the people who have them currently should not be able to keep them. That is once again Beto's position, which he said on the debate stage as a presidential candidate, backed off this year. Now he's back to it. And you wonder why people have trust issues on the part of politicians when they talk about gun control and what they intend and what they don't intend. With Beto O'Rourke, the goalposts are moving sometimes back and forth. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website where the podcast is always free of charge and on demand. I'll be on special report tonight. See you there, 6 p.m. hour, Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer and the whole crew. Looking forward to that. Fox News alert in this middle hour. Seven minutes ago, the markets closed in New York and the Dow ended the day down. 177 points, closing out at 32,812. And on that note, let's welcome back to the show Charles Payne, host of Making Money, with Charles Payne at 2 p.m. Eastern weekdays on Fox Business Network. He's on Twitter at CV Payne. Good to have you back here, Charles. It's great to be back. Thanks, Guy. I want to start with this soundbite. I know that you've played it, you've talked about it, you've thought about it. Janet Yellen on CNN earlier in the week saying that they got and she got the inflation question wrong. Here she is in cut two. I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks 
that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand, but we recognize that now. So there's the Treasury Secretary sort of copping to getting the inflation question wrong. They called it transitory for a long time. We were wrong, she said. I mean, I guess that's better to admit it than not, but it also doesn't really do hurting Americans much good, practically speaking, right? Yeah, practically speaking. And and also it was uh, it was it wasn't, uh, you know, I got some issues with it. I, you know, listen, it wasn't just that she was caught blindsided and, you know, this this has overtures. So, oh, if it wasn't for the invasion of Ukraine kind of thing without directly saying that, uh, you know, listen, she was she, she had to push for a stimulus package. Right. And that we didn't need. Mm-hmm. And I know she I know I personally believe she knew we didn't need it. Now, I have gone back since she's gotten this job and I've read some of her uh, white pages and white papers and some of these other uh, interesting articles on her from even before when she was Fed, Federal Reserve chairman that I had never thought about, because that's supposed to be an apolitical role. And the secretary of Treasury, she works for the President Biden. And I was shocked at how much of a progressive slash liberal she has always been. And so she does share some of these ideas on what's fair and what's not fair and things like that. Uh, So I don't think with her or with Biden, you know, we talk about the economy and economics. Uh, They talk about it as they wrap the veneer of uh, economy and economics around what their true agenda is. And that's the fairness agenda, if you want to call it that, the social justice agenda, if you want to call it that. President Biden wrote an op-ed a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal. And if you read between the lines, he's talking about Yimby, Yes in My Backyard, the urbanization of suburban America. He's talking about things that uh, really are not economic per se, uh, but everything to do with this sort of you know progressive movement. So – I think that drove her a little bit. I believe the I believe that the the, the 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 person who was the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, world renowned economist, uh, knew some some of these things, but probably chose to ignore them, or hope that they wouldn't rear their ugly head. And of course, they have in the worst kind of way now. But so yeah, you know, we give her props for apologizing, although there's nothing she could say anyway. I mean, you can't you know you can't quadruple down at this point. You were 100 percent wrong. Uh, and now we have to say, uh, you know, are you and Powell, uh, who also got it wrong, are you guys capable of getting us out of this? Yeah. Meanwhile, CBO projecting that we could have elevated inflation all the way into 2024. A lot of questions about the possibility of stagflation or recession. Maybe we'll get into that here in a second, Charles. But I'm interested by this. I don't know if you saw it on MSNBC earlier. Former Obama economic advisor Steve Ratner said this, quote, we're all paying the price for having overstimulated the economy during the pandemic, putting too much money in people's pockets, which created a lot of inflation. There's no free lunch here, and we're all paying the price. Talking about the trillions in spending, of course, the Democrats wanted to go even further, five trillion further, as a matter of fact, some of it on the Fed as well. But there's Ratner from the Obama administration saying, like, look, this is what we did. He and Larry Summers and others had warned about it. He said, now the chickens have come home to roost, and it's very painful for Americans. In response, Gene Sperling, who currently works in the White House for President Biden, he responded to that quote on Twitter saying, some have a curious obsession with exaggerating the impact of the rescue plan while ignoring the degree high inflation 
is global and has been impacted by variants that impeded supply corrections and exacerbated major energy hikes due to the Putin price hike and aggression. So he's he's sort of in that tweet, and I'm trying to cobble it together because he was using some shorthand. He's saying you've got people, some people have a curious obsession. He's obviously taking a shot at Steve Ratner, probably by implication Summers as well. This is the current Biden guy saying they're missing the fact that this is a global phenomenon. It had to do with COVID and supply chains and and Putin. They're downplaying that and they're overplaying the role that a trillions in wasteful spending had. What do you make of this fight among Democratic economists? You know, there's something going on, without a doubt, between the uh, most of the old Obama alumni and this and this Biden crew. There's no doubt about it. I've heard uh, for even last year through some folks in D.C. there was some sort of animus. I'm not sure what it revolves around, uh, but there's no doubt it exists. That doesn't mean that Summers, Ratner, and uh, from from time to time even others, um, uh, you know, aren't aren't being honest about this. Maybe they're laying it on pretty thick. Uh, but they are being honest. And, you know, here's the frustration I have, because I filled in for Neil Cavuto yesterday on the Fox News channel, and I had uh, Austin Goolsby on. And you can't have it both ways. Every time President Biden opens his mouth, he brags. He takes these crazy victory laps, even though people are suffering. And he talks about the jobs and, and household and household balance sheets and these things. Well, that's well, and, and the other thing, you know, Charles, there's... just just to jump in, just to add and, and buttress your point, I've been making the case when Biden is bragging about certain elements in the economy, and there are certainly positive signs in the economy in addition to all the pain and the, the downsides. But to the extent that those positive things are happening, it's happening despite him overwhelmingly. He is opposing well, the policies in states that are driving all this growth, and then he wants to take credit for that. And then I think you were going to make the point, but the the bad stuff is not his fault at all. The good stuff is his credit. Forget the conservative governors who are driving it. It really seems like transparently obvious cherry picking. Well, not only is it cherry picking, but – and I think this is sort of the answer where Ratner would have if he were to reply to that tweet – you can't you can't take credit. You know, if you, you you put in trillions into the economy. Yes, people. You send people money. People make twice as much money for not working. You send people stimulus checks when they didn't need them. Yes, people have money in the bank. Yes, employment is full. That's great. But you wrote artificial checks that someone's going to have to be accountable for at some point, and along the way, you triggered inflation. So, you know, so you can't brag about all of these amazing things. There was this guy, Jim, uh, Jim Rogers, he, uh, one of the most successful guys on Wall Street. He's always have a saying, you know, it's, uh, show me a, a trillion dollars, give me a trillion dollars, and I'll show you a good time as well. You know, so we, we pour trillions into the economy. Yes, they're going to have all of these things, but they are artificial. And that is the distinction between the recovery we had before the pandemic and the Biden recovery. One was organic driven by low taxes, low regulations, and real animal spirits. The other one was artificial. Federal Reserve put their $6 trillion in. Uh, both administrations put about $4.5 trillion in. But the last couple of trillion, that put us over the top. So it was a powder keg, ready to go, 
that sparked it. So yeah, take all the credit if you want for all of these things. You know what? If I can get my checkbook out right now, write everyone in my neighborhood a check for $100,000, they may put me on their shoulders and, and have a parade for me. But if tomorrow someone says, uh, you know what? It turns out you've got to pay this back. They're going to hate me. And right. that's where and, we are and, right now. So you can't have it both ways. And again, when you look at where a lot of the jobs are being created and why, it's in places where the people in charge are doing the opposite of what Joe Biden wants. And Joe Biden attacks Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and others like oh, that sure. all the time. Sure. Those are the engines of the good stuff that Biden's trying to take credit for, even though they are sort of, I would say, openly defying and doing the opposite of the Biden worldview when it comes to their policies in those states. I mean, it's just it's really hard to swallow. And I guess the good news is, Charles, very few people are buying it, which is why the president's in so much trouble. His party's in so much trouble. You talked about overheating the economy, the inflation that is here and apparently will be here with us for quite some time. Yeah. Now yeah. the conversation every so often turns to recession, soft landings, hard landings. What does that exactly mean and why do we hear guys like Summers, who is right about inflation, say it's going to be awfully hard to negotiate a soft landing, which could mean, you know, a painful recession as a corrective in all of this? What what are your thoughts on that and the timing of it, too? I think the way to think about it maybe is a uh, if we're going to use landings as a, you know, maybe as a hot air balloon uh, filled up with all this artificial stimulus. And we're trying – the Federal Reserve is trying to let enough air out so that when it lands, the passengers don't get hurt. Uh, you know, that kind of a soft landing, you could kind of visualize it that way. Uh, but we're talking about uh, a maneuver that has been rarely done, and the last time I think was 1994. And we're also saying it's the same Fed that didn't see transitory, that now – you know, they, they, they didn't see that we were too high in the clouds to begin with. And so the higher in the clouds we are, the more difficult this landing is. We're coming down at a rapid pace, you know, terminal velocity. Uh, you know, do they have the skill set to really let her down nice and easy? And I think a lot of people don't think they do. Uh, so and we'll, if they we'll don't, maybe have, and if they don't, we'll then what? Hard and landing. when? Well, we'll know, I think, this year. Um, we already know what the Fed's going to do, and I think the early medicine is obvious. Uh, you know, uh, because it's just how far out of hand this got. Uh, they'll probably pause around September, take a look at their handiwork. Remember, the Fed doesn't really want to do this. And in, in his heart, in his heart, Powell doesn't want to do this. You know, Powell loved being able to stimulate the economy. He even thought of himself as being himself as being something of a social justice warrior and that his work would somehow uh, help everyone, you know, I, and something happened to him. You know, in 2018, they, they they hiked rates four times, once right before Christmas. Uh, we had a 20 percent, you know, downturn in the market. And then all of a sudden, like January 3rd or 4th, he gave the speech, which was a major pivot. Most people missed it, and they became, you know, dovish ever since. And I think it turns out in real life he walked past a homeless person and started thinking about policy, Fed policy. So, um, you know, I, I, everyone kind of got out of their lanes. Everyone started to look at their job and their responsibility in a way that was skewed, maybe romanticized. And you can – so I'm not going to argue whether their intentions were good or bad. All, all I know is that they – that the, everyone overdid it, that there's too much money came into this economy. Too yeah, many the people results. were incentivized not to work. The results are living with us now. This wage spiral 
is, is, is one of these things. You can't stop it once it happens. So wages go up. When wages go up, prices go up. When prices go up, people can't afford it. They either want a new job or they don't work. Wages go up again. This is a spiral. It's hard to contain it. You've got companies like Amazon doing so much for people, like, you know, the minimum wage is going through the roof. Starbucks, I know people who've worked at Starbucks for 10, 20 years. They love it. They sing their praises. Now you've got union movements? What's going on? They can't do enough now before they did better than everyone else. So this wage spiral is insidious. The more it goes up, the more wages go up. Buy a hot dog anywhere outside of Costco. It's crazy. So once these genies get out of the bottle, bringing them back in is so difficult, and that's why some people think recession is inevitable uh, or or a hard landing is inevitable. And I'm not in a recession camp just yet, but uh, I am worried about this landing. Things are going to be a little rough and tumble. Uh, It sounds, Charles, like you believe that a pivot to the economy through op-eds is not going to really change the facts (laughs) on the ground. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's uh, and then the op-ed was just, just a rehash of the speeches. I still didn't see anything in President Biden's op-ed or his outline that was any different. He started off bragging, yeah, and he talked about the need for taxes, and he talked about the need for spending. And I'm, like, screaming, that's how we got here. By the way, I did yep. have fun with Austin Goldsby because they bragged about the um, the deficit. I said, the reason the deficit is going so well, government receipts. Have you seen how much money corporations and individuals are paying? By the way, those are the tough tracks, tough tracks, taxes. They lose their mind when you remind them of that. <laughs> yeah, and it's also because we had a huge amount of emergency spending that isn't on the books anymore. That's the easiest way right, right. to bring less down spending, the deficit because it was, you know, yeah, I mean, it's just like it's such a silly thing to brag about. But they're trying, and they say, oh, yeah, we need to raise some taxes. And then they get asked the question, well, how will that bring down inflation? And you get a word salad extraordinaire from the White House press secretary, from whom we will hear in a soundbite coming up in the next segment. We've got to pause here. Charles Payne, making money with Charles Payne every weekday at 2 Eastern on Fox Business Network. Charles, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. See you. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We were just talking with Charles Payne about inflation and one of the clear manifestations that's really tough for people is gas, price at the pump. It's just extraordinary. I mentioned yesterday I saw on Memorial Day just over $6 a a gallon at one station that I passed by in Virginia. And I know out in California, you're like, that's child's play. It's like eight bucks some places. And the national average is expected to get worse and worse. As the summer unfolds, so Peter Ducey, our colleague, asked a question about this at the White House of Corinne Jean-Pierre, the new White House press secretary. Tough question, pretty straightforward question, and an answer that I would say is not really very good. Cut 15. A gallon of gas costs more than people on the federal minimum wage are making in an hour. What does the White House want these people to do to stop driving to work? Look, the president understands what it feels like. 
Um, Deese just spoke, spoke about this. Brian Deese was just here and talked about how he understands what it means for people who are sitting at their kitchen table and see gas prices go up. He understands that feeling personally, or seeing prices uh, of grocery store of grocery uh, groceries go up in the grocery store. This is something that he is uh, inherently aware of, and he's doing everything that he can. As Dees, Brian Dees was just here. Uh, um, his economic advisor, uh, one of his top economic advisor, laying out what he is planning to do or continue to do to make sure that we lower costs at the gas pump. Whoa. Early days in her tenure, she is not very good at this so far. She really has trouble spitting it out. There is also no answer there. The answer seemed to be he feels your pain, right? The Bill Clinton line, basically, that's what she was channeling. Biden feels your pain. He understands how it feels for real people. When was the last time he was not a professional politician at a high level? Decades? He's pretty insulated from this stuff, actually. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. With us now on the Guy Benson Show is our friend Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH, our affiliate in Seattle, Tacoma. He's also a regular all over Fox News. Jason, welcome back. Thank you so much. I want to ask you this, and it's sort of a broad question. Because I wrestle with it every year in June. It is June 1st, so it is Gay Pride Month or LGBT Pride Month, and you start to see all the companies put rainbows in their logos, and I see the armed forces putting out pride tweets and all that. And I see reactions from some of our fellow right-leaning gays who want nothing to do with sort of Pride Inc., if you'll call it that. Then you've got left-wing gays who also hate Pride Inc. because they want it to be much more radical and a celebration of the Stonewall riot, and they hate that corporate America is co-opting it. Then there's other people who are sort of in the middle saying, no, we're, we're glad that there's this celebration and all this acceptance. They get a little, I don't know, queasy when they see police being excluded from some of these Pride parades, as you're seeing in some of the left-wing cities. How do you approach Pride Month? Is it something that makes you feel good, bad, angry, indifferent? Where do you come down on this? I'm mostly indifferent. I come from a place where, you know, whenever we do any of these kinds of festivals where you're celebrating an identity, I always wonder why we're doing it. Why is it necessary? And certainly there was a time in which gay rights in particular were something that we were truly fighting for. But I feel like the implication from a lot of the activists behind these events is that, number one, we haven't come as far as we have, that that we haven't actually won any battles whatsoever, and it's pretty much like a time of 50 years ago, which is, of course, absurd. Or or they say, or they'll kind of, they'll do this weird thing, Jason, where they'll say, yes, we've made some gains, which I think is a vast understatement, but, and they love this phrase, there's work still ahead and we've only just begun. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. Like, it means only that they just basically, begun. Yeah, I mean, it means they basically just created a lifelong job that they will always have, and they'll always stay in some position of power within some organization. Sometimes they're getting paid, sometimes they're not. But you can also tell that they've kind of run out of things to fight for because they end up then moving into a different direction that has nothing to do, like in this case, with gay pride. We're now talking about banning police officers at a whole bunch of different festivals around the country. Gay police officers. Right, I guess their their police status, right? Their badge means more 
than their actual membership in the community. I mean, you're yeah. really out of whack when that's the new priority. But it's New York City. It's San Francisco. It's mm-hmm. other very blue cities. That's the that's the battle being waged. Exactly. And, you know, I've heard from some officers who use the language around feeling like they're being pushed into the closet. Just in this case, it has nothing to do with their sexuality. It has everything to do with their profession. And I think that that's absurd because when there is a anti-gay hate crime, guess what? You're calling the cops to come and help you and then to, to somehow claim that people in the audience might feel triggered by their presence, by their mere uniform, is so absolutely absurd. And yet again, God forbid there was ever to be an attack of some kind or any kind of incident at one of these gay pride events, the cops are showing up. Regardless, by the way, as to whether or not you're going to demean them because they happen to wear a uniform, they're going to show up and they're going to do their job because that's what they signed up to do. What do you think of the corporate America co-opting of the month with – and it's become a meme, right? It's become a joke (laughs) – where every single company, with some of their exceptions in certain subsidiaries in certain parts of the world, they just rainbow everything. And it's not just the rainbow anymore. There's that triangle that comes into the rainbow that's a bunch of other colors, and it's very hard to keep track of what the latest approved flag might be. In fact, I saw some gay couple painted their house, literally painted their house a rainbow, and they were being scolded by activists because they didn't include the triangle of gray and black and, you know, white and whatever all that stuff is. It it does get exhausting. I guess, I I don't know, I'm conflicted. I'm glad. I wouldn't rather live as a gay man in a different time and a different culture. I'm very blessed and lucky and fortunate, I feel, to live right now. I also do find it so exhausting and so transparently uh, not brave for these companies to do something that is now so, so accepted, right? It's it's like uh, de rigueur, exactly. Uh, So again, I'm not like angry about it, but I will say it's day one. By the end of the month, it's like enough, enough. Can we do a week? But by the end of the week, you're going to feel that way. How about a weekend? Can we have Gay Pride weekend and just call it a day? Yeah, we don't need an entire month. We, we can do maybe a lunch hour or happy hour, actually. We can go ahead and do that if you'd like. But I, I'm kind of with you or just it's – I'm not angry. I'm mostly annoyed, I guess, if, you know, Oreo comes out and they put out their their Pride edition. Okay, so now you're trying to sell a whole bunch of gay people Oreos. Oh, good for you. You, You're so brave to come out there and sell us products. And it's the same with virtually any of these companies, the the ones that truly care about the community, whatever that actually means to, to the individual company or the people who run them. They're doing whatever they're doing year round. They're not making a big deal about it. I don't need someone to try to push a whole bunch of garbage I don't need to purchase anyway for the entire month of June just to make me feel like they care. I have a general position of I assume everyone cares until they show me they don't on a whole host of issues. I don't go around wondering if a a company is anti-Semitic because uh, I haven't seen much uh, Hanukkah celebration from one of the – like I just – I don't care. Well, but that's that's the game too, right? Because one of the sports teams that I follow, they posted – a pride post on Instagram with all the rainbow stuff and everything. Fine. I have no problem with it, obviously. But some of the commenters on the post were saying, oh, really loved your Memorial Day post yesterday, and there was none. It's like, okay, so if you're going to signal this sort of thing, you better start covering your bases because I don't know why you're going to do a Pride Month post but not honor people who died fighting for the country. It's just this weird game 
that these organizations get, you know, entangled in and yeah. they're angering these people, angering those people. I just feel like we spend way too much time being angry in general. Uh, that's that's kind of my approach to the month. And I, before we go, Jason, I do want to get one other response. This goes to the mission creep sometimes of, you know, the, the fight is just beginning or whatever. Leah Thomas gave her first interview to Good Morning America, breaking her silence. This is the swimmer from Penn who transitioned to a woman and was just crushing all the biological women in the in the swimming pool. It's just very unfair. Uh, I think a lot of people can agree. They sometimes try to say everyone in the LGBTQ community must be a good member of that community by defending everything, basically, the latest you know, item du jour. I'm not going to defend Leah Thomas because I think it's very unfair what she's doing. I hope she lives a, a fulfilled, happy life. I don't think on an athletic level it's fair. Here's part of what she said in that interview. Cut 18. Listen. The women who signed the letter anonymously said that they absolutely supported your right to transition, but they simply think it's unfair for you to compete against cisgender women. You can't go halfway and be like, I support trans women and trans people, but only only to a certain point where if you support trans women as women and they've met all the all the NCA requirements and I don't know if you can really say something like that. Trans women are not a threat to women's sports. I mean, many people, including many women, beg to differ, Jason. And this is the litmus test. This is the problem. You can't say that you support trans women or trans people but then object to the unfairness in athletics because then you're not really supportive. I don't think that's a fair standard at all, but it's clearly the standard that some activists want to enforce. Uh, clearly, and you can obviously support trans folks without supporting the, the upending of women's sports or women's rights, which are the very things that generations of women actually fought to achieve. But what I think Leah Thomas, Thomas brings up inadvertently is the conflict that you have on the left on this very issue. You've got these hardcore gender activists who pretend a trans woman and a biological woman are exactly the same. And you've got the more reasonable folks in the Democratic Party or on this issue, at least, who say, yeah, there is, of course, a difference. We're, we're all about being respectful of folks. I'm not going to be uh, outwardly discriminatory or bigoted towards anybody. But to pretend that there's no difference whatsoever is just naive. And that conflict... Right, especially physically speaking, and it manifests itself in athletic competition. And Leah Thomas is basically saying, you're not pro-trans unless you're supporting what I'm doing here. And that would then put a lot of people on the other side of that fence. So interesting conversation here on day one of Pride Month with Jason Rance, our friend from KTTH in Seattle. Jason, thank you. We'll be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show, and it is time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This story comes to us from an outlet called West Cook News in Illinois. It's part of a right-wing network of websites, and it is ideological, although it kind of looks like a local news site. So it's kind of a hybrid approach. And this was shared widely. And I had some skepticism about it, which I'll explain here in a second. But there are elements of this story that appear to be true and very much part of the woke worldview. Here is the headline. And it's about a district in Illinois. 
that's going to, quote, implement race-based grading in 2022 and 2023, so the next school year. Now, I think that's a misleading headline, and this first sentence also seems to be a bit misleading. Oak Park and River Forest High School administrators will require teachers next school year to adjust their classroom grading scales to account for the skin color or ethnicity of its students, which would make you think that they were going to create different standards for different students based on the skin color of those students, which does not actually appear to be the case. Here's how the story goes on. School board members discussed the plan called Transformative Education Professional Development and Grading at a meeting on May 26th, which was presented by the assistant superintendent in that system. In an effort to equalize test scores among racial groups, OPRF, the district, will order its teachers to exclude from their grading assessments variables that it says disproportionately hurt grades of black students. They can no longer be docked for missing class, misbehaving in school, or failing to turn in their assignments, according to the plan. Now, it's important to note that the school district has denied this. They said that there was a meeting, that there were some suggestions made, there was a PowerPoint about equity and changing grading systems, but no actual new policies have been adopted or implemented. And that some of the ways that this story categorizes the changes were not accurate. Now, you have to wonder, were they planning on doing some of this stuff? And then they got caught and generated controversy, so they scuttled everything? Or were some of the key details in this story botched? I think that's an interesting realm of inquiry here. But what we do know, back to the report, advocates for so-called equity-based grading practices – seek to further school district's mission of D-E-I-J, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, training teachers to remove non-academic factors from grading practices. And they quote a woman named Margaret Sullivan, who's the associate director of a group called the Education Advisory Board. Sullivan calls grading based on traditional classroom testing and homework performance, quote, outdated practices that foster, quote, unconscious biases. Teachers may unintentionally let non-academic factors like student behavior or whether a student showed up to virtual class interfere with their final evaluation of students. I would actually argue that attendance is not a non-academic factor. It is a crucial academic factor. And whether you're talking about not punishing tardy assignments or missing assignments or showing up late or not showing up at all for class – Those factors do help paint a holistic picture of a student's performance and their development. Now, some of this was in a PowerPoint presentation that was given. It also goes back to a report that was cited, and the report interviewed teachers from around the country, including one from California, who said that he has, quote, stopped giving zeros and deducting points for late work, as well as allowing students quote, unlimited retakes for quizzes and tests, which seems very much not like a best practice. It's like, oh, you just keep going until you get the outcome that you want. Oh, deadlines, handing things in on time, don't worry about that. That's too traditional. That doesn't lend itself to enough equity. The calls for a switch to this kind of grading started really emerging 
last year after there were reports that came out that there was a spike in F grades among the students in this school district. Now, what happened last year? That was where Illinois was especially bad. If you look at the whole country, Illinois was among those states uniquely bad when it came to school closures. You had kids not in classrooms. You had kids in hybrid or remote learning scenarios that were giant failures. And wouldn't you know what? A lot more kids started to fail. We read actually a few months ago from a New York Times story where there were experts and teachers unions representatives and others saying, is it really the right thing to stigmatize kids by measuring their learning loss? Should we keep doing standardized testing and other scores and benchmarks to compare pre versus post pandemic? It's just not right. It could harm their mental health, which was just an excuse. They don't want to quantify the harm that they helped inflict on these kids. Everyone recognizes that learning loss was a huge problem. They want to make it harder to measure. And in this case, it looks like the school district, seeing an uptick in F's and failing grades, decided let's figure out a way to use words like diversity and equity to lower the bar and lower standards for everyone. And part of it might be this racist implication that kids of certain skin colors are incapable of showing up to school or doing their work on time or doing well on tests by virtue of their race, which I think is not just soft bigotry of low expectations, as President Bush used to say, but systemic bigotry put into official policies. Again, this district said they're not doing it. The change has not been made. But we have seen these types of things being pushed around the country. And I'm sure some of these adults, a lot of whom were very much in favor of terribly, catastrophically wrong school closure policies and then ongoing masking and all that stuff. I think there's probably a lot of crossover with the diversity, equity, inclusion crowd on this stuff. They might have convinced themselves that they're helping and doing the right thing and trying to make things more fair. But I think by lowering standards, making it a lot harder to fail, not on the merits, but lowering the bar of what counts as failure, they are doing no one any favors at all. They are hurting the kids more. And I think some of it is rear-end covering on their part. So whatever ends up happening in this district or similar districts, again, I don't know if they were caught red-handed or if this thing was spun in a way that made it seem more imminent and more problematic than it actually is. But it's not an isolated incident. It is part of a pattern. And it's a pattern that is doing a disservice, compounding harms for kids. And we are strongly opposed to that. And you can dress it up in whatever buzzwords you want. It is harmful, not helpful. And it's woke tales. Woke tales. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming right up. Stay with us. We have an update actually about masking and science and what the Biden administration is now up to, what they have just done in court. You don't want to miss it. Straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Wednesday happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern Time. Always appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day and really growing. We are very grateful for that. Catch me tonight on Special Report coming up in the next hour, Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer and company, probably around 6.45-ish Eastern Time. We will see you there. Meanwhile, this hour here on the radio, our final hour of every show, brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is expanding enormously because it's so popular. And it's popular because it's really good. And we consumed every single can that they graciously sent us at our barbecue over the long weekend. More on that, by the way, coming up later this hour. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold near you. Now upwards of 40 states, a big expansion. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Oh, and by the way, there were people who had never tried it before. And I heard from several of you over the long weekend who were making your maiden voyages, respectively, with the long drink. And you were sending me private messages on Instagram We're trying it. We're really liking it. People who do not like gin nevertheless love the long drink. And we heard that over and over again at the party and elsewhere. So just an extra plug. Now, as we get going in our final hour, I want to bring to you this story from NPR, an update on something that we've talked about a lot on this show over the last two-plus years, which is COVID and specifically mask mandates in April, you'll all recall that there was a federal judge in Florida who struck down mask mandates on planes and trains and other modes of transportation regulated by the federal government. So for a long time, we all had to wear masks constantly in those settings. And then a judge came in and said, no, this is no longer lawful. The way it was implemented had all sorts of problems, so it's gone. And so just like that, basically overnight, masking on airplanes and in other settings similar to that became optional. And I remember we talked on this show about a poll that came out shortly thereafter from the Associated Press that purported to show a majority of Americans, a strong majority, still wanting the mask mandate to be in place on commercial flights, et cetera. And I doubted that. I said, based on the experience I've already had, what I'm actually seeing, I think that this poll is nonsense. Or it's people saying what they feel like is the quote-unquote right thing to tell a pollster, but in their actual lives, they are acting very differently. And I encourage people who were pointing to that poll, like, see, this is popular, and getting rid of the mandate is not only scientifically bad, but politically unpopular – I said, actually, I think it's neither. I think it is scientifically the right decision to make masking optional. And I think that move ultimately will prove 
popular. And if you disagree, run on it. That was my challenge to overwhelmingly the Democrats who were freaking out about this. Said, great, if your position is we need to bring back mask mandates, expand COVID mitigation requirements, run on that. Go for it. And let's just see how things end up with voters in November. And then what happened, which was interesting, was the Biden administration wasn't really sure how to react because they couldn't support the decision because their official position was the opposite. They had a lot of people in their base who were angry about it. And the base wanted the full COVID safetyism to be articulated and enforced. But I think the White House and other top Democrats were also recognizing that public opinion was shifting pretty dramatically. We had seen some wins on this front racked up, for example, by Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And then a bunch of other governors, even some Democratic governors said, "Okay, let's maybe start reconsidering some of this when it comes to schools. The inertia, the momentum was going in the direction of mask optional. And so the Biden people were really stuck. Do they make a big deal of opposing this ruling from the judge down in Florida? Do they challenge it in court? Do they accept it? And they decide to try to kind of split the baby by saying, we're disappointed. We disagree. We're going to be considering our legal options. But it is what it is. And these entities and airlines and stuff, they can stop enforcing the mandate, at least for now. They tried to straddle the fence. Then there was a game of hot potato where the White House was asked, what are you going to do? They said, oh, well, we'll defer to DOJ. And DOJ, which would have to appeal the ruling, they said, well, hang on, we're going to give this decision to CDC. Because if CDC decides that they still need the authority, then we'll take that under consideration as we make a decision on the law. And the White House was like, oh, yeah, let's wait on that. So the thing landed in the lap of the CDC. They thought about it briefly and they said, "Okay, we still want this authority to reimpose the mandate. So DOJ said, "Okay, we're going to fight in court. And the White House says, "Okay, that's the plan. That's the whole big background to this, which is the NPR story that I mentioned a few moments ago. The Justice Department asked a federal appeals court on Tuesday, yesterday, to overturn last month's court decision by a federal judge that declared the mandate requiring masks on airplanes and other public transportation unlawful. There's a 48-page document filed in the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and the DOJ is arguing that CDC still needs this authority. And the mandate, quote, is still needed to protect public health. So that is the official position of the Biden administration. They are suing. They are fighting. They are appealing in court to have the power to reimpose mask mandates onto U.S. travelers. That's what they want. They may not campaign on it. I almost guarantee you they will not. But in terms of their actions, when it comes to the law, that is the position that they have landed on. And they might argue that, oh, it's really just about the principle of the authority. No, it has to come down ultimately to what is the policy? What are the implications? What does the science say? Is it, quote, still needed to protect public health? I think the better question is, was it ever needed to protect public health? There are some settings, especially earlier in the pandemic, with less transmissible strains of the virus, 
where masks made sense. And again, if you want to wear a mask, it makes you feel more comfortable. It's a better high-quality mask. Go for it. But as we've learned over and over again in the massive real-world experiment and academic research, mask requirements in schools have not worked. They have been ineffective. They have downsides. They have harms to kids. They do not have a proven upside or efficacy. What about on airplanes? Liz Wolf from Reason responds to the administration's appeal with this. Quote, the appropriate and logically sound way of handling this would be to ask, in the time that the mask mandate was absent, did we see a huge uptick in transmission events linked to planes? The answer is no. So again, we've run a gigantic nationwide experiment for the last, what, month and a half, mid-April into now early June, where masks have been optional. And in my experience, on multiple flights that I've been on, a majority of travelers have opted out of the masking on the planes. That's what I have seen. In some cases, it's 80-20, let's say. In other cases, it's closer, 60-40. But I have not been on a flight since the mandate went away in which just eyeballing the thing, there was even close to a majority of people wearing masks. So you replicate that thousands and thousands of times all across the country, day after day after day, and you would think we might have a bunch of examples of super spreader events linked to airplanes now that the masks are gone. And that has not happened. We've had super spreader events linked to fancy D.C. dinners, like the Gridiron Dinner and the White House Correspondents Dinner. We've seen that. That has not stopped dinners like that from taking place. That has not triggered the reimposition of mask mandates for events like that. On airplanes, where we know they have these advanced air filtration systems that are actually quite effective at circulating the air and refreshing the oxygen in the cabin and sucking the used air and virus particles out, right, that whole process is actually really good and effective. And if people were right about the masks being such an important tool, even though people, of course, were taking them off to sip drinks and to take bites of food, sometimes eating very slowly so they didn't have to wear their masks, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the masks were making a difference. If that were the case, with the masks now gone off of most of the travelers, we would see a correlation and we're not seeing it. Which brings us to a piece written earlier this week by David Leonhardt in the New York Times. And again, I appreciate when he does this. I often think that he is very, very, very late on some of these revelations. But he is trusted by a lot of people on the left. And so it's useful when he finally writes these things in the New York Times because it might get through to some people who are clinging on to these superstitions and fantasies that they want to impose on the rest of us. He looked at whether or not mask mandates have worked at all. And here's what he says, quote, the evidence suggests that broad mask mandates have not done much to reduce covid caseloads over the past two years. Today, mask rules may do even less than in the past, given the contagiousness of current versions of the virus. Successful public health campaigns rarely involve a divisive fight over a measure unlikely to make a big difference. He says, given laboratory studies, you would think 
that communities where mask wearing has been more common would have had many fewer COVID infections, but that hasn't been the case. In U.S. cities where mask use has been more common, COVID has spread at a similar rate as in mask-resistant cities. Mask mandates in schools also seem to have done little to reduce the spread. Hong Kong, despite almost universal mask wearing, recently endured one of the world's worst COVID outbreaks. And he goes on and talks about many of the other factors that have resulted in disparate outcomes. And he keeps coming back to mask requirements not being one of them. And I'm glad he made the point about Hong Kong. You can also mention New Zealand, South Korea, some of the most mass compliant societies in the world ultimately got hit. Omicron is going to do its thing. The wave comes. It looks similar no matter where you are. Masks, no masks. The virus ultimately viruses. Now we have a bunch of ways to treat it. We have vaccines that are still very helpful at keeping you out of the hospital and from dying, which is to say there are effective strategies at limiting the damage of COVID. But forcing a bunch of people, whether in classrooms or in airplanes or really anywhere else, to wear masks, particularly cloth masks, is not among those effective strategies. And I guess at long last, more people are willing to say it out loud. And yet the Biden administration says, no, please give us the power to reimpose the mask mandates. Their argument is it's, quote, still needed to protect public health. The evidence suggests otherwise, and it's not a little bit of evidence. It is a ton of evidence gathered over years. So once again, here's Team Biden with their eye on the ball doing exactly the wrong thing. How often is that the case with this crew? And I repeat, if they had the courage of their convictions and really believed their pseudoscience, then lean into it and run on it. I dare them. They won't, and I think that really underscores the truth, the reality, political and scientific. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this tweet last night. You see it occasionally, something like this, an account asking, who is the most famous person from your hometown? So I started racking my brain. I looked up on Wikipedia the prominent people from Ridgewood, New Jersey, and it's actually pretty stiff competition. I'll give you some of those options in a moment, but quickly let's go around the horn here at the show. Dan, who is the most famous person from your hometown and what is that hometown so my hometown is guilford connecticut and the most famous is historical it's abraham baldwin founding father who signed the united states constitution oh that's a good one i think that's a very strong entry in this genre wyatt who takes the crown in your town um former call girl ashley dupree from wall township new jersey of the Elliot Spitzer. Oh, client number nine? Yes. That is very different from a founding father. That is your most famous person from your town? Wow. All right, Christine, who you got? Well, I have two. Um, first is Melissa Rauch. She plays Bernadette on The Big Bang Theory. 
which is a pretty big show. And then second, this person uh, lived in my town, which is Marlboro, New Jersey, for a few years, uh, Adina Benzel. Okay, that's a pretty big one. Yeah, she's a pretty big one. All right, so for Ridgewood, I need your help because I can't decide who's the most famous of these people. You've got Martha McCallum, our colleague, although she's no longer in Ridgewood, but she was. Robert Sean Leonard, an actor. He's been in a lot of things, including House and a few other shows and movies. Harlan Coben, the best-selling mystery writer. Bill Geist, the journalist. I think he was at CBS for a very long time. Daniel Hettinger of the Wall Street Journal. That's one for Wyatt. There's a guy called L.A. Beast who's a competitive eater who has a huge following. I actually know him. He was good friends with my next-door neighbor. Ali Stroker, Tony Award-winning singer and actress. She's now really blown up in her career. Jordan Sparks, who won American Idol. And her dad, Felipe Sparks, who played for the New York Giants. Frankie Munez from Malcolm in the Middle. He was Malcolm. And then former Yankee Bobby Richardson. Those are just some of the ones that I took off of the list. To your ears, which of those people is most famous, would you say, Christine? Jordan Sparks. You think so? I think so. That was like the first name that like perked up my ears. I mean, obviously Martha McCallum, but I'm not sure in the grand scheme of things. I think Jordan Sparks, people would know the name. Wyatt, what do you think? Definitely the Wall Street Journal. Daniel Henninger, household name. I kind of wonder, could it be Frankie Muniz? Because Malcolm in the Middle was huge. Harlan Coben has sold millions of books, and they've been spun off into shows, very popular shows. I don't know. But I thought it was sort of a fun exercise. And I think the most interesting answer out of any of these was Wyatt's, the call girl. What is that, Wall, New Jersey? Yep, Wall, there New Jersey. There you go. Claim to fame right there. She went all the way to New York to make her name with the former governor. Got a break. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, earlier in our first hour, we welcome back to the show retired General Jack Keane discussing Ukraine and Russia and the latest out of that situation. Here is part of that back and forth with General Keane. I want to start with a basic question. What is the latest out of Ukraine? Overall, the Russians have been routed. They have failed to achieve almost all of their major military goals. However, in recent days, I've seen a raft of reporting that the Russians might be gaining ground, gaining steam in the eastern part of the country, as that's where this war has basically centered upon right now. What can you tell us? What is happening in Ukraine? Who has the upper hand? Yeah, well, the Russians definitely have have made some progress here in the last week or so. Uh, And you're right, in the eastern part of the Donbass, in Luansk Republic, so-called independent republic named as such by by the Russians, uh, they have made some progress, and they're taking control of the city of Severodonetsk, which is in uh, in Luansk. And what what has actually happened here is the... uh, The Ukrainians had had to make, uh, I think, a pretty tough decision uh, they pulled their forces out of Severodonetsk 
began pulling them out a couple of days ago when the Russians uh, were beginning to penetrate into the city. And they made that decision because they wanted to preserve their combat strength and not defend the city. I don't think in their own minds, certainly every city in, in Ukraine is valuable because Ukrainians live there. But it, it's not critical like Mariupol was uh, strategically. So they pulled their forces away to preserve them because what the Ukrainians really have in mind here, while the Russians have made some progress here, uh, certainly, and they have, they have more territory under their control now than they did uh, prior to uh, February 24th when the invasion began, all that territory largely uh, in the south and, and in the east. But the Ukrainians want to conduct a, a, a counteroffensive and certainly begin with some limited attacks counterattacks. They're doing that as we speak in, in Kyrgyzstan, in the vicinity of the city, in the suburbs of it, and they've had, they have made some progress. Um, but whether they can, Guy, whether they can actually conduct a major counteroffensive to systematically take back the territory that they lost really remains to be seen. We know the Russians uh, maneuver forces, that is, their infantry and armor forces are weak, poorly led, poorly trained. Uh, Depleted. But their, but their artillery has been uh, very effective. They they have more artillery, and they artillery outranges the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have. And that is why the howitzers that we have sent to them are so valuable and why they've also wanted the uh, uh, rocket the rocket artillery pieces as well, the so-called HIMARS, that the administration has finally made up its mind to send to them. I think they, they waited uh, far too long, should have made that decision when the Ukrainians So uh, can I just jump it. in, General? Can I, on that point, I've been hearing from some of the experts that the Russians and the Ukrainians are sort of fighting, of course, against each other, but also against the clock. The Russians might be gaining a little bit right now. But that's because there's a lag in the equipment. And when the equipment arrives, the Ukrainians will again be much more formidable and this advantage could go away. Is that correct in your estimation? Well, that's part of it. That's certainly part of the story. Um, but, but the Russians have a significant amount of resources, uh, even though their their troops on the ground are not performing that well. They do have significant artillery that they can uh, replace the artillery that's being lost. They have the ammunition. Um, and, and Putin, I think what his where, where he is, he just intends to grind down the Ukrainians as best as he can. He's going to be patient about it. Uh, he's going to try not to risk too much of his forces. Uh, that's why they've concentrated everything in the eastern part of the Donbass and that has been their focus. The, the western part of the Donbass is in a republic called Donetsk, and they have stopped all uh, forward motion and attacks on that just to focus on this one area so they can have some success. And I think that's sort of the overall plan, just to grind the Ukrainians down slowly, um, take less risk with their offensive operations, Show me what they did in the beginning with Kiev. That full interview with General Keene and the entirety of today's show, start to finish, available on our podcast.
which is on demand and free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, when we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine is back from her very long weekend, and she might have some regrets. We'll explain about Cookie's remorse after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Catch me on Special Report coming up in the next hour on Fox News Channel with Brett. I think it's Mara Liason and Hugh Hewitt and yours truly on the panel. So that's in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Special Report coming up. Here at the radio show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com, and that podcast every day is free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always like to remind you of that. Well, yesterday, producer Christine had the day off, so she had a super extended long weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and we had discussed here on the show back and forth multiple times whether or not Christine was going to attend our Memorial Day weekend barbecue, which was on Saturday. Although (laughs) it was funny, on Monday, Memorial Day itself, we had gone to see Top Gun, the new movie. And I gave my review of it yesterday during the home stretch. In case you missed it, you can go back on the podcast. Overall, two thumbs up. We got out of the movie. I had some text messages waiting for me on my phone from a friend. He and his wife showed up at our house, bottle of wine in hand, to attend our barbecue, they just wrote the wrong date down. They saw it was the Memorial Day weekend barbecue, and it clearly said Saturday and the time and everything, but something in his brain, I think, said, oh, Memorial Day, it's going to be Monday. They put it in their calendar. They didn't even look at the invite again. They just came straight to the house, which, of course, was empty except for the dog. So I'm sure Roy was barking up a storm, protecting the house. Then they brought up the invite on their phones because they were confused, and they saw the date. They just had gotten it wrong. So he was embarrassed. He apologized. It happens. I think everyone has a story of something similar like that happening in their lives, getting a date wrong or a time wrong or forgetting about a time change. It happens to the best of us. Everyone else was able to remember that it was Saturday. Everyone who attended showed up on Saturday. But producer Christine was not among them because after all the seesaw deliberations, not coming, maybe coming, not coming, yes, probably going to come, not coming, on and on it went. The ultimate decision was no. She was not going to attend. She was going to stay home in New Jersey instead. Now, someone who did come is quiet, Wyatt, party animal. Quiet, Wyatt. So the first people showed up at the house around 1 or 1.30 p.m., and the last people left the house just shy of 1 a.m. I actually had already gone to bed because I had TV the next morning. Media buzz. And it wasn't like a three-minute quick segment on something light. It was multiple segments on media coverage of a school shooting. So I wanted to be in a decent place for that. So I went to bed, not early, but earlier than the last people taking off, which is fine. I'm glad people had fun. But that's also a very long extravaganza. We're talking about 11 hours of people eating and drinking at the house. We had a great time. We had a lot of fun. 
Wyatt arrived, I would say, relatively early on in the day, maybe 2 or 3 p.m., and he did not quite burn the midnight oil, but he was within the, the last group, like solid core of people who were still at the party, close to midnight, I would say. Does that sound right to you, Wyatt? Sounds about right, yes. Did you have a good time? Yes, Guy. It was a very good time. had a lot of fun, and thank you for inviting me. And I wish Christine was, was there. Would it, it would have been an even better time. Many people are saying that could be the case. There are people on the other side of that. But you were there. There were some Fox colleagues there that you were chatting with. You had, I couldn't help but notice, multiple long drinks over the course. And you were there. You paced yourself. You were there a long time. You were not stumbling and bumbling around. But you seem to be enjoying the experience. I think that's fair to say. Very fair guy. So we had probably 60-ish people over the course of that whole time. And it was sort of come and leave as you please. Some people showed up, left, and then came back. Some people were supposed to come and then didn't, and we might talk about that tomorrow, actually, on the show, the old last-minute cancellation or ghosting phenomenon. But Christine, we know, had said ahead of time, I'm not coming. However, it was relatively late in the evening, not crazy late. I want to estimate around 10 p.m., and Wyatt is standing right near me, and he says, Guy, look who's calling And he shows me his cell phone, and there's an incoming call from Cookie. And actually, in Wyatt's phone, she is listed as Carousel Killer. So that's how I knew it was her. That's actually not true, but it should be true. So I said to Wyatt, let me answer the phone. So I did, but I did it very quickly and quietly as to make Christine think it was Wyatt. So I said, hello? And she said, it's Christine. How's the party? What? And then she went on. And then I said, Christine, this is your host, Guy Benson, host of the show, not your host at this party because she wasn't there. And Christine, you cracked up. And then what did you tell me on that phone call? That I wish I went to the party. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think now, I still stand by that. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Had you perhaps had a glass or two of mama's juice prior to that phone call? Uh, Sure. Okay. Yep, that's what I thought. I wasn't totally, totally sure, but I kind of had the sense maybe that was the nature of this phone call. And you were calling to talk to Wyatt to check in on the party. What were you going to tell him if I had not revealed myself to be me? What would you have said? No, 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 no. Thinking I, it was still Wyatt. I just assumed that I didn't know why Wyatt was such a party animal. So I knew it was an afternoon party. I thought that YY would have been home, you know, prepping for war or something. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize he was still at the party or I would not have called. But I just wanted to see how the party was. Um. But no, you answered. <laughs> I answered. I really didn't know. And and I believe, if I recall correctly, again, a word that you used about your Saturday night was bored. Mm-hmm. You were bored at home. And we had, at that time, I would say dozens of people who were frolicking, drinking, eating, relaxing, chilling, whatever word you want to use, at the house. We had the kegs going. We had, by that point, the long drink was gone. We were still doing a little bit of grilling. The desserts had come out. 
and we were still going strong and would continue to go strong for several more hours. And you were just, what, holed up in your apartment in New Jersey, not doing much, just having regret, having FOMO? Yes. So what happened was, and listen, I'm not one to throw my husband. By the way, you should have had FOMO because you mowed. (laughs) You mowed. My husband had had a long work week. He was uh, traveling and it was just going to be difficult to get him to go to D.C. for the weekend. So um, with that being said, he was also very tired from his trip. So after dinner on Saturday night, he kind of fell asleep pretty early. Then Megan mm-hmm. fell asleep, and then here I am just watching, you know, TV with Mama's Juice by myself. Yeah. Your box of wine is running out, and you said, oh, I've got to go. Oh, idea. no, Let it was not running wine. out. I never let that happen. <laughs> no, okay, no, you no. have backup supplies. You have a whole stash. Yes. Yeah. But I think the solution here, A, would have been just to come all along. B, if it was such a long, tiring week, you could have just said, hey, Bobby, and I actually suggested this to you on the air. Can you have Megan for one night? I'm going to come down to D.C., stay the night, and against my better judgment, Christine, we would have given you one of our guest rooms. You could have stayed at the house. Well, I did not know that. And then you could have hopped in your car the next day, assuming you had you know, recovered by that point, and driven home. And the Sunday of the long weekend usually doesn't have bad traffic because everyone's traveling Friday and Monday. Saturday and Sunday is pretty open, so you could have gotten down easily on Saturday, driven back at probably – eight hours round trip, I think it would have been worth it because instead you had a sleepy, boring, quiet Saturday night of a long weekend as the only person even awake in your house. When we had people, I mean, the place was, it was bumping. The party was bumping at Chateau Benson and you mowed. I know. And I even had someone reach out to me on Instagram saying, hey, where were you? I was at Guy's party and I was really hoping to, you know, catch up with you. And I'm like, oh, as I was sitting there with my box Was of that wine. a direct message that you sent yourself? <laughs> no, I swear it was from somebody. <laughs> that's a we real person. Know. It's yes. not like your, uh, your fake girlfriend from Canada type situation. No, no, Oh, no. really wished I had seen you there. It was a real, real person. <laughs> uh-huh. But, yes, okay. I, I think looking back, I definitely, I definitely made a mistake of some sorts. I mean, I wanted to be with my family. That was the thing. And I really did enjoy my time with the family. But, right, but they, wanted to, they wanted to be in bed yeah. is the thing. So, they, you wanted to be with them and they wanted to be asleep. And especially since I had the long weekend because Megan was off of – oh, my gosh. Her school is just off all the time. So Megan's school was off yesterday. That's why I took off. And I had that long weekend. I should have just got up Saturday morning, went down. Mm-hmm. And then I could have slept over. Oh, my gosh. We could yep. have had a slumber party. I could have went with you to Howie Kurtz. You could have. I mean, you know, me and Howie, we're, we're buds. We're good friends. So and you book him all the time. I do. I do. Um, and then I could have just went home or had brunch with YY and then went home. I, I did not plan properly. And it will be noted, I'm sure, by White as well. And yes, it, things will be different next party. Yeah, it's going in the binder. It's going in your file for Mm -hmm. sure. And by the way, with all due respect, I don't really think you should ever make brunch plans with Wyatt, especially after a night of drinking, because he would be like, okay, well, I'll meet you at 4.45 a.m. outside the Wall Street Journal Bureau. I'll bring a bagel. (laughs) We just sit on the steps outside the building. Yeah, that's it. And And he'd have coffee, of course. You could probably get home by sunrise after after having brunch with him. So that's a, that'd be the upside. You get an early start on the day. But, yes, it was very fun. We had a great time. Thanks to The Long Drink for sponsoring it. 
and they sent us so much, and it went really fast. At one point, someone said, I got the last one. I said, oh, I think we have some still in the other fridge, and I went, no, all gone. So that's a testament to how delicious it is. And the party was amazing. It was just, you know, missing a little extra layer of crazy, and we could have used it. And I think you're hearing Wait, the regret. Uh, you can hear the regret is that, in is, her voice. Is the crazy me? I will let you reach that conclusion. That sounds like the conclusion that you have reached yourself. So not my words, your words can neither confirm nor deny. I can confirm that I'm on special report coming up in the next hour. Fox News Channel. See you there. Back here on the radio. Same time, same place tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.